Good evening. Tonight we're starting um, a four-week series on the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is one of the foundations of the Buddhist teachings. There's four of us who are going to do the series. I'm going to start out with an introduction and the first two steps of the path, right view and right intention. The other three three other people are going to do the other steps. And Daniel is going to do, over here, is going to do the next one. So Bhante Gunaratna calls the Eightfold Path the Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. People start meditation practice for many different reasons. Stress relief, medical reasons, lowering their blood pressure, working with pain, They want to do better in school, better in their jobs. They're all good reasons to practice. But what the Buddha taught, his focus was to be happy. The purpose of practice is to be happy all the time. The Buddha described the path to happiness in the Four Noble Truths. They can be simply stated as that dukkha exists. Dukkha is a Pali word that can be translated to suffering, to unsatisfactoriness. It's often translated as stress. It can vary from the very minute discomfort that something isn't quite right to major suffering that people experience with major losses in life, major sadness. The cause of dukkha is clinging or craving. The Pali word for that is thirst. It's like this need for things to be different than they are. That's the second noble truth. So the first noble truth is that dukkha exists, that there is this unsatisfactoriness in life. Not that all of life is unsatisfactory. There's a lot of great things in life. But just that that is, that's that's a major issue. The second noble truth is that craving causes this. And the third noble truth is that dukkha ceases if we let go of that craving. And the fourth noble truth is how to do it. That's the noble eightfold path. The path is divided into, can be categorized into three basic sections. The first category is the wisdom category. And that's mainly what I'll be talking about tonight, the right view and right intention. The second category is virtue or morality. And that includes the way we act. That's our speech, our actions, our livelihood, everything we actually do. And the third category is called concentration. It's the training of the mind. It's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So just to review the eight steps of the path, the common words are right. You know, right view, right intention. It doesn't mean that there's a morality to it. It's kind of like taking the, let's say you want to go somewhere. It's like taking the right exit of the, off the freeway. It doesn't mean 
that the other exits are there's something wrong with them. It just means they won't get you there. So that's the quality of right. Some people translate right as skillful, as wise. Sometimes it's thought of as the like um, if you think of a guitar. You know, you want to play guitar when it's in tune. You know, there's nothing morally wrong with a guitar when it's out of tune. It just doesn't sound good. So that's the essence of how we want to look at this. You know, sometimes people are used to, you know, in the, um, from their previous religious backgrounds, you know, everything seems to be moralistic into right and wrong. So the word gets a little bit tainted here. So the first part of the path, the wisdom part, is how we look at things. It's through what filter do we look at our lives? the why of our behavior. The second part of the path is what we actually do. So first, why we do it, then what do we do, and the third category is how we train our minds. The first part, the wisdom, is the right view. The right view is looking at life through the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. It's really a focus on your life, on the idea, on the truth that clinging is what causes our suffering. That's the core of the view, that by letting go of our clinging, we can be happy. It's very simple. The second part is right intention. The intention is what guides all of our actions. If your intention comes from your view that clinging causes suffering, then your intention is to do things where you're not clinging. So it's important to have that as your guiding principle if you want to be free. I'll go into a little more detail on that in a a few minutes, but um, I just want to briefly go over the other parts of the path virtue or morality. Again, those are words that can be very um, heavily loaded. They're really about living a life that supports our view, that supports being free, that supports happiness. That's all that means. So when we talk about right speech, how does our speech affect our lives? If we lie, how do we feel? Are we happy? If we say something bad about someone else, how does it make us feel? So everything in the path refers back to why we're doing this, which is to be free, to be happy. Uh, Right action refers to the five precepts, to refrain from taking life, to refrain from taking what's not given, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from false speech, and refrain from intoxicating the mind. And the next part of the action part of the path is right livelihood. Are you doing a livelihood that doesn't hurt people and that doesn't hurt yourself? And the last part of the path is concentration or training of the mind. The first part is right effort. What right effort refers to is the effort to let go of any mental states that make you unhappy and to cultivate mental states that make you happy. That's the essence of it. 
The next part is right mindfulness, which is probably what you're all most familiar with, which is the training of the mind to see what's going on at any given moment. And the last part of the path is right concentration, which is the unification of the mind. Now, they're taught in the sequential manner, but really all the parts of the path work together. You can't concentrate if you're not mindful. If you're trying to concentrate, let's say you're focusing on the breath, you need mindfulness to know when you've left the breath. You can't have right speech if you're not mindful and you don't notice, well, when have I, you know, what's going on here? Are people, how are people feeling when I say these things? You need to have right intention to live a life where you're not lying, where you're not taking what's not given. So all the parts of the path are intertwined. For instance, one of the things that happens in practice sometimes is, you know, you're, you're uh, sitting down to meditate and you really want to stay on your breath and you really want to stay focused and the mind just won't do it. It just kind of goes all over the place. You just can't get calm. So what, what's your intention at that moment? You know, you can be harsh with yourself if you forget that part of right intention is to be kind. It's very easy to be harsh, to be critical of yourself, and to say, oh, I'm really not doing this right, and I'm just failure, I'm failing at this. The kindness with which we approach ourselves at any given moment, any moment, no matter what's going on, that's right intention. The reason we're on the path is to be happy. For instance, uh, right speech. It's a lot more than just following some rules. You know, the rules are don't, you know, don't lie, don't speak badly about others, don't gossip, don't use abusive or harsh speech. But, you know, uh, there's people who are motivational speakers. I don't know if, how many of you have heard motivational speakers who are great speakers, and they follow those rules. But their intention might be to sell you something, to sell tapes, to, uh, you know, make a living, you know, and that's their real purpose. It's not about anything deeper than that. Maybe to manipulate you. And they can still be following those rules, but their intention, the heart of what they're saying, is, uh, may not be coming out of desire for people to be happy, for themselves to be happy. Same thing with concentration. You can be very concentrated if you want to steal something. You know, you're paying very careful attention. That's not going to get you free. That just brought us right into the very first part of the path. Uh, right view or right understanding. The Pali Samaditi. In both the beginning and the culmination of the Eightfold Path. In the beginning, you have to have a, a view of what you're doing in the path. In the end, it's a much, it's a deeper understanding of the path. 
the two major aspects of right understanding are the Four Noble Truths and the understanding of karma. Now, the Four Noble Truths are really the whole thing. You know, craving causes suffering, let go of craving, you're free. It's a very, very simple concept. And intellectually, conceptually, we can work with that as our guiding light or inspiration uh, or direction. But it takes a very, very deep, penetrative understanding to actually realize that in a way that transforms us. And all along the way, you can get like little glimpses of that and little pieces of, of you get transformed. A little bit more of you lets go, a little bit easier. But that's what we're looking for, is this very deep, deep knowledge of this Four Noble Truths. As the practice deepens, eventually we really are able to penetrate into the nature of reality, which means that everything is impermanent. Nothing lasts. There's nothing to hold on to. And in that very deep understanding, we also see that there isn't a self that says, I'm here but that the self is a process that just is changing continuously and that there's nothing to hold on to. And in that nothing to hold on to, instead of fear and clinging, there's freedom. And that's the beginning of the path and the end of the path. The other aspect of right view is the understanding of karma. That's, uh, that's a word that has really been uh, a little bit of abused in this country, in this culture. The word karma actually means action. It means cause and effect. It means that the choices we make will either lead to happiness or to unhappiness. Every choice we make conditions us one way or the other. The more we do something, the more we're likely to continue to do it. We're not much different than Pavlov's dogs. If you're in the habit, let's say, of primarily seeing uh, what's wrong with people, so your mind is like, you know, oh yeah, that person's like, they're too slow at this, and they're too this, and too that, and that that's your habit of mind where you do that. The more you do that, eventually, that's all you see. You just see a bunch of people with, with, uh, who are doing everything wrong. And the mind gets conditioned and gets deeper and deeper in those grooves of always noticing that. I don't know if any of you are looking to buy a car and all of a sudden, um, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to get a Honda. And all of a sudden you see them everywhere, you know, that's the car you see everywhere. And it's the same way, you know, you, you, your mind is looking for whatever you're used to looking for. It gets more and more used to that. So if you make a choice of starting to see what's good about people, what's kind about them, what's loving about them, then all of a sudden, you know, the whole world just looks a lot kinder, a a lot nicer. So choices are going to be either skillful or unskillful. And again, we're taking the morality out of it. Skillful just means it makes you happy. It's going to give you long-term happiness. Unskillful is going to make you unhappy. There's a lot of things that can make you happy temporarily. So it goes a little bit deeper than, than just you know, making you happy. For instance, you, know, you can have uh, 
big bowl of ice cream, you know, and that, you know, that can make you happy for a minute. And then you have another one that makes you happy, and another one, and all of a sudden you just uh, have the consequences of having eaten too much and feeling sick. So that wasn't very skillful, yet it still made you happy. So what we're looking at is the long-term happiness. What choices do we make that give us long-term happiness? Sometimes you can get angry. Uh, let's say you get angry at, at your child, you know, and sometimes you, know, you just get angry and you just kind of let it out and, you know, for a moment, even anger feels good. I mean, that's why people, there's people who are like anger addicts. There is something in that release that feels good, but yet it's pretty obvious that getting really angry at a child is not skillful. Sometimes we can't see the, all the harm or all the benefit from our choices. That's why it's really important to be in touch with our intentions. For instance, a lifestyle of poor nutrition, people say, well, you know, I just, I've been able to get away with eating chunk my whole life, and then, and then eventually it might catch up with you. So choices, you know, you may not see it right away, you know, so obviously something like really poor nutrition might take 25, 35 years to really show up. Some people have just a metabolism where it just doesn't seem to affect them on day in, day out basis, but yet it still has consequences. And same thing with positive things. I remember when I was, when I, I had a patient and I was really listening to her problems and I just made a really casual comment about, you really should learn how to type in relation to something in her career. And, and I just didn't think about it. And years later, she came back to me and she said, you know, when you told me that, I learned how to type and it changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, wow, you know, just this, you know, and I just kind of made a kind comment from my observation, but I thought would be helpful. And so we never know, you know, sometimes people put a lot of, um, really passionate effort into like an environmental uh, cause and they put their hearts into it and it's coming out of tremendous kindness and it doesn't materialize. You know, did that go to waste? We have no idea what, it, what happened with it. I think you can be assured that the kindness, if you did it with kindness, if you did it with your, with your heart, even if it didn't have this effect that you wanted on the environment, it still had the effect of all the people you touched with your caring, all the people in your life. But if you did it with, uh, sometimes you have these wonderful causes, but people are angry about them and really uh, militaristic about them, and they bring this really hostile energy into the situation, and they might even win but they might also cause all the side damage of, of hurt feelings and, and different, different ripples of that effect. I know that I've been, um, been in, like in a sad mood, you know, and just had someone walk by me and give me this really warm smile. And, you know, they probably never thought twice about it. And like it just like, oh, wow, it just cheered me up for the whole day. So we don't know the effects of our actions very often. But what we do know is that if our intention is kindness and compassion, that the effects will be positive, will lead towards happiness. Many people relate to karma 
in relation to the future and past lives. I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands, how many believe in reincarnation, but I won't. <laughs> but the Buddha said it doesn't matter. He said, if there is no future life, doing skillful things in this life will bring you happiness and a clear conscience in this life. If there is a future life, then you get a double reward. You know, you'll have happiness in this life and happiness in the next one. Uh, on the other hand, if there's no future life, doing something unwholesome, living your life unskillfully, uh, will make you miserable in this life, eventually, at some point. And the same thing, you'll actually you get a double whammy in the next life. Karma is about volition or will. Karma is actually, essentially, a mental event. It comes from your intention. That's what generates karma. For instance, if you're walking down the street, you know, and you accidentally step on some bugs and kill them, and don't even notice, it doesn't have that much of an effect on your mind. It has an effect on the bugs, but, but if you were to sit there and kill those bugs on purpose, with aversion, with anger, you know, it's like, ooh, those, ugh, let me get out of here. You know, with, with that quality of mind, it reinforces that quality of mind. So it has a very strong effect in you when you do that. When you act from dislike, you support a mind that clings to aversion. When you act from desire, it supports a mind that clings to desire. The way I like to think of karma is that everything matters. Every moment counts. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do is a cause that leads inevitably to some effect. There's nothing you do, nothing you do, that doesn't have an effect. Now, whether that effect is skillful or unskillful depends on your intention. The effects of our actions lead to two types of immediate results, external or internal. For example, if you cultivate generosity and loving kindness towards people, internally what happens is you feel good. You've been generous and loving, and your mind feels peaceful and happy whenever you're generous and loving. The second is external. When you're generous and loving, other people seem to like you. People are nicer to you. But that's less important because that's not something you can control. That's not reliable. The opposite's also clear. The Buddha pointed to ten actions that are always unskillful because they inevitably lead to suffering. These actions bring physical and psychological pain to yourself and to others. Three of the actions are actions of the body. They're killing, they're stealing, and sexual misconduct. Four of the actions are actions of speech, lying, malicious speech, harsh language, and useless talk. The last three are actions of the mind, 
And those are the main roots, unskillful roots, greed, hatred or ill will, and delusion. I find it really interesting out of the ten that four are related to speech. You know, whenever I think about that, it really makes me think about how important our speech is. Any action that comes from a mind that's filled with greed or with hatred or delusion leads to suffering. It's unskillful. Any moment that greed is in your mind, that that strong craving for something to be other than it is leads to suffering. It might be immediate or it might be that you'll take an action that, will, that comes from that. Understanding of karma requires that we take full responsibility for what happens to oneself. Not blaming others or circumstances or anything outside oneself. Not being a victim. We can't eliminate many of the problems that arise in life. But we can eliminate our own reactions to them. We can change ourselves so that we can be happy regardless of the circumstances. Even in unfair circumstances, let's say you have a boss who took credit for something you did. After all this hard work, you know, and they just pretended that they did it and they've got full credit and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So how do you work with that? Do you hate your boss? What does hating do? The chemicals in your body, if you're full of hatred, they don't harm your boss, they harm you. If you focus repeatedly on, God, that was so unfair, it was so unfair, and so, you know, and you tell everybody about how unfair it was, and you, it may feel like you're getting it out, but actually, what are you actually doing? You're focusing on this feeling of unhappiness. Can you accept that, yes, something happened that was unfair? Can you come to peace with that? It's what actually is. Life sometimes is unfair. It's really how it is. Is it worth giving our happiness up for it? If we're in a peaceful state of mind, we're more likely to be more effective in the way we act. By the way, in that situation, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't try to do something about it. It's still very skillful to say, okay, this happened, and maybe you might write some letters, file a complaint. I mean, it may not do any good, and it might. You still act. It's still important to act, but to act from a peaceful mind, not act from anger. You don't have to give up your happiness when something unfair happens. You don't have to give up your peace of mind when you get ill, when you lose someone when things don't go the way you want them to. Someone told me once, most people would rather be right than be loved. It seems that way often when we get into arguments with the people we love, right? They can also be said that we act like we'd rather be right than be happy. It's not easy. That's how we train our minds. 
I would find a situation like that pretty challenging. I'd have a hard time, you know, really letting go. I mean, it, it would bug me, you know, it really bug me if, you know, my boss took credit for, for what I did. But what we can do is we can incline our mind. I don't expect my mind, oh, it happened, immediately let go, I'm free, I'm happy. You know, that's, sometimes that's too much of a gradient. So what do we do in that situation? You know, if we just incline our mind in the direction of letting go, I want to be happy here, I want to let go of this, that's enough. We don't have to try to force the issue. We don't have to force ourselves to let go. Letting go is something that happens gradually. It's like a flower opens in its own time. But you want to incline the mind in that direction. If you don't incline in that direction, it'll never go there. But if you incline it slowly, time after time, every time something happens that you have no control over and you can't do anything about it, and you incline your mind to accept that it really happened and to not resist it because there's nothing that can be done. Every time you incline in that direction, slowly the mind starts learning to be at peace with what's really happening in your life. It doesn't make you not act. It just brings you to peace with whatever's in front of you. The Buddha said, Beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. Most of us have been taught how to meditate by sitting on the cushion. Maybe some of you uh, do walking meditation. But how do we work with the Eightfold Path the rest of our daily lives? This path is about being awake all the time. If we spend an hour or half an hour sitting on the cushion meditating, that's really a very, very small part of our lives. It's a great time to train the mind but we still have the other um, however many hours uh, you're awake. It's very easy for most of us to get caught up in our busy lives. I find it useful to check, uh, to check in with myself regularly during the day. Is there dukkha? Is there unsatisfactoriness right now at this moment? Check in. Do it yourself right now. Is there any part of you that feels like a little bit like you want something to be different? Is there any struggle, any resistance in your mind right now in this very moment to what's going on? If so, is there something that you're clinging to that you can let go of? Doing this practice really connects you with the, with the no, Four Noble Truths, with the heart of the Four Noble Truths. Check in. Do it throughout the day. Try that for a few weeks. Try, you know, every couple hours. Just take a moment and check in. You know, is there something that doesn't feel right right now? Is there something I'm struggling? Am I struggling with the present? Am I in conflict with the present right now? Is there something I'm not accepting?
right view is the forerunner of the entire path, the guide for all the other factors. It lets us understand our starting point and our destination. It helps us not get lost. Suppose you're suffering from a childhood memory. You know, you know it's important to investigate it, but how do you investigate it? Maybe it's something your parents did that was very harmful and painful. You might focus on blaming your parents for your condition, and you may think that you're actually exploring the issue. But in terms of right view, you need to also explore your contention with what happened. Where are you clinging now? Are you feeding your anger at your parents? Are you supporting an attitude of being victimized? Suffering is always in the now. That's the only place we can be freed. I'm not suggesting that you don't deal with childhood issues in a psychological manner, but I am suggesting that you add this aspect to it, that you add the aspect of or clinging right now. In particular, if if something happened in the past, it's so useless to wish it hadn't happened. And it brings, takes her energy in a direction of resistance, of unhappiness. Our view, or conceptual orientation, is what guides our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. The Buddha said he sees no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states as wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states as right view. What does that mean? It means that keeping in mind that clinging causes suffering can help you act out of best motives to make yourself happy. But if you're view is that you're going to try to always get your way and always get what you want and that that's what makes you happy, Uh, you're going to be in for constant suffering. The The very deep understanding of how clinging causes our suffering eventually penetrates deep enough that we're able to let go of our clinging completely. So I'm going to talk a little now about the second part of the path. I know I've been intertwining them, but that's just how they work. And that's right intention. Right intention is also called um, right thinking and even right resolve. Right intention is made up of three parts. Renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. There are two primary ways of training the mind. One of them is training the mind to let go, and the other side is cultivating certain qualities in the mind, cultivating the skillful qualities of the mind. Renunciation is letting go. Cultivating goodwill and harmlessness is cultivating, training and cultivation. 
each kind of right intention counters the corresponding kind of wrong intention. The intention of renunciation counters the intention of desire, of attachment. The intention of goodwill counters ill will. The intention of harmlessness counters the intention to be cruel, to be harm, to harm someone. Thought or intention is the forerunner of all action. It directs the body and speech. But your intention comes from your prevailing view. So if your actions are not skillful, you need to examine what view you're holding. When actions come from unwholesome intentions, from the pursuit of greed and hatred, it can cause tremendous suffering in your life, in the life of others, in the whole world. Because as people seek to gain wealth, position, power, without regard for the consequences, the cause for all the competition, conflict, injustice in the world, oppression, it does not lie outside the mind. All those terrible things in our planet that are causing all the tremendous suffering come from thoughts driven by greed, by hatred and delusion. They're just a manifestation of those roots, of those unskillful roots of the mind. They're not much different than the root right now that says, um, gee, this is it's just too warm, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I want it to be different. It's not much different than that. It's the same quality that causes uh, even major suffering. When you understand the Four Noble Truths in relation to your own life, it gives rise to the intention of renunciation. Understanding in relation to other people gives rise to compassion and kindness. When we see how our own lives are pervaded by suffering, by unsatisfactoriness, and how this dukkha derives from craving, the mind naturally inclines to renunciation. We also see that like ourselves, all other living beings want to be happy. This gives rise to thoughts of goodwill. And again, just like ourselves, all beings are subject to suffering. And that causes thoughts of compassion and harmlessness to arise, to wish that they be free of suffering, to not want to add any more to the suffering in the world. The three roots of unhappiness are greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes hatred can be a little too strong. Sometimes people use the word aversion because it really, uh, sometimes just wanting things to be a little bit different isn't really hatred. It's just, it's aversion. And greed, um, often it's used attachment to sensual pleasure, attachment to, to want whatever you want. So the major roots are wanting something to be different or wanting something or wanting to push something away, aversion. What delusion is, is not seeing things as they really are. But what does that mean? We can be deluded about a million things. You know, we can be deluded about uh, where food comes from, uh, what's happening politically in the world, 
um, there's just a million things to be uh, deluded about. But the, the delusion that's relevant here is the cause of suffering, is the constant habit of thinking that there's a valid reason to cling. The constant habit that happiness, we're going to get happiness if we grab onto something. That's major delusion. Right view, contemplating on the Four Noble Truths, brings it into focus. Greed and aversion are uprooted through training of the mind with thoughts of goodwill, renunciation, and harmlessness. One way of working with unskillful thoughts is to substitute them with skillful ones. You can't have two thoughts at the same time. So let's say you want, um, you want your partner to go with you somewhere and they don't want to, they disagree, they want to do something else, and you're very attached to the outcome, you really want them to do this, and this is causing like a very strong sense of unhappiness. What do you do then? Can you bring in, at that moment, you know, you really, you really want them to do this, and why don't they do what you want them to do, you know? Can you bring in, at that moment, thoughts of letting go, of renunciation? Even if you're really attached at that moment, can you just, a little bit, bring in uh, well, I actually want to be happy more than I want to give my way. Yeah, a little bit more than I want to give my way. And I want my partner to be happy more than I want them to do what, they, what I want them to do. And even if it doesn't work, you know, if it doesn't, you know, all of a sudden instantly you dropped it and you're really happy and everything's okay, and, you know, you still want that, you know, you still want that, you know. But that inclining of the mind in that direction, slowly, slowly, trains the mind to let go. And in that moment, even when you're not letting go, you want to be kind to yourself. You want to accept that, gee, I'm not ready to, I'm not really letting go fully, but that's okay too. And you incline your mind not to be hard on yourself. So you keep inclining the mind in the direction of kindness and compassion for yourself, for everybody else, and for letting go. Renunciation is letting go. It's acceptance. It's moving towards non-contention. It's a sense of rest and relaxation. It's got a bad rap. You know, a lot of people think of renunciation as giving up something we value. But it's not giving up anything we value. It's relaxing into what is. It's not having to constantly try and manipulate and control things. This is one of my favorite quotes um, by this um, Tibetan nun. Her name is Tenzin Palmo. This is what she said about renunciation. The reason we're not enlightened is because we're lazy. (laughs) There's no other reason. We don't bother to bring ourselves back to the present because we're too fascinated by the games the mind is playing. If one genuinely thinks about renunciation, it's not giving up the external things like money, living home, or one's family. That's easy. Well, (laughs) um, genuine renunciation is giving up our fond thoughts, all our delight in memories, hopes and daydreams, and mental chatter, 
to renounce that and stay naked in the present. That is renunciation. So how do we renounce? If craving is the cause of our suffering, putting an end to it depends on eliminating it. But repressing or cravings doesn't work. It just pushes them below the surface. If you think about it, I don't know how many of you have gone on a diet. You know, so you diet, 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 you really deprive yourself. You know, that's, you think you're renouncing. You know, and then, you know, when you're off the diet, you just binge. Same thing with other addictions. Sometimes a lot of people, when they first stop drinking, they just increase their smoking tenfold. Uh, they start eating cookies and etc. Because if you're repressing, that just kind of pushes it internally. Renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up the things we cherish. It's about changing our perspective on them and understanding them so that they no longer compel us. When we deeply understand the nature of attachment, when we investigate it closely with attention, Attachment falls away by itself without the need for struggle. Attachment is painful. When we really get that attachment is painful, we drop it. (coughs) But that requires a lot of practice, a lot of clear seeing, a lot of mindfulness. When When desire is watched closely, The moment it springs up, it creates in us a sense of lack, the pain of want. To end this pain, we struggle to fulfill the desire. So a lot of us sometimes think that desire feels good. And part of it does, there's an excitement to it. And if you move fast enough, you don't notice the pain. But uh, just watch yourself. You know, somebody serves like this big, you know, go back to food, right? The food analogies, you know, your favorite dessert sitting right in front of you. But they're saying, no, no, we're going to do it this 10-minute ritual before you can eat it, you know. And, you know, and that want, you know, how does that wanting feel? You want, and you're really hungry, you know. How does that desire feel? There's pain, pain shadows or pleasures. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about the intention of goodwill. There are two unskillful ways that people usually handle anger or aversion. They either act it out or they repress it. Acting out releases the tension. It's like what I said before, um, you know, acting out your anger gives you a momentary feeling of getting it out of your system. But usually when you do that, it actually causes a lot of peripheral damage. It ruins relationships. And it doesn't really leave your system at all. Because you'll notice the next time a situation like that comes up, the anger's right there. It's ready. The other approach, repression, merely turns the anger inward, where it becomes self-contempt or chronic depression. So a lot of people are very angry and they've never... You know, they, they grew up in a way that they never expressed their feelings. And so they just turn it inward and they just, it just causes this kind of feeling of very ongoing uh, level of, of depression. 
Um, sometimes people get like this irrational outbursts of violence, you know, of anger, just out of nowhere because they've been repressing it for so long. One remedy that the Buddha gave is the cultivation of metta or loving kindness. This is what metta is. It's a love free of craving. It's a heart that doesn't have an object. It's a heart that opens, loves, no matter what's happening. And it's something that can be trained. A lot of people kind of think that's a little bit contrived. But it's, a, it's an interesting practice. You know, you sort of have to try it. You know, that was my, my, first, my first thoughts when I first heard of that practice was that it did feel, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to sit here and pretend I'm loving when I'm not loving. But it's a practice of training the mind in that direction. Again, you're inclining the mind into the open heart. A lot of people think that um, the way the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice is done is that you first give love and acceptance to yourself and then slowly you do it to you know, maybe your mentor, uh, to people, to your friends, and then to people you know nothing about. And then eventually you go for the really difficult one to the people who you really have problems with. So it's a very slow training of an opening of, of the heart that, uh, that loves really with that attachment. But sometimes people feel, have a really hard time in the very first part. They think they're being selfish if they give love to themselves. And the Buddha said that investigating the whole world with my mind, never did I find anyone dearer than myself. Since oneself is dearer than others, one who loves oneself should never harm others. Sometimes people think they're being compassionate. They sort of feel unworthy, and so they feel that everybody else is more important than them. That's not a source of compassion. It's really an aversion for ourselves when we do that. So if we don't take... A lot of people are like, uh, I don't know if the word is, compulsive caregivers, you know, and they're always taking care of other people and, and you know, never taking care of themselves. They are deluded into thinking that they're actually uh, doing something compassionate when they're doing that. Or sometimes people offer to help others out of a feeling of superiority. That's called pity. But it's important to accept that sometimes we have mixed intentions. Sometimes you might really want to help someone and you also may be concerned by your self-image at the same time. You know, you, you really want to help and you really want people to think you're really cool. You know, and both of those can be coexisting in you. And so what do you do at that point? You know, you honor the part of you that really wants to help and you accept the part that isn't so kind, you know, that is, that is uh, concerned with your image. It's important to remember that we practice to alleviate our suffering. We shouldn't add to our burden by holding an oppressive or judgmental attitude about ourselves. And if we find ourselves judging and being oppressive to ourselves, then we should be kind to ourselves about that also. The other two qualities of intention, goodwill and harmlessness, some people wonder what the difference is between the two. Goodwill is an emotional state, it's a, it's a state of the heart, of wanting things to be a certain way. Harmlessness is actually what leads you to action. 
is not doing anything that's harmful. An example would be, let's say you have goodwill towards the environment. You wish that the air were clean. You wish that nature uh, was being honored. But harmlessness might be riding your bicycle instead of your SUV. The intention of harmlessness is guided by compassion. To arouse compassion, you might want to focus on someone who's hurting, someone who's suffering. And that slowly trains the heart to uh, open that way. And it's very easy to have compassion. Well, not easy, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's much easier to have compassion when you see somebody suffering. But how about training the heart for compassion when you see somebody who, who's happy, happy and, but they've done some really terrible things, you know, like they're very wealthy because they've uh, oppressed a whole bunch of people. Can you have compassion for them? A heart that's free has to be able to have compassion no, to, no matter what somebody has done. To develop the intention of renunciation, we have to contemplate the suffering that arises from clinging to our desires. To develop goodwill, we have to consider how all beings desire happiness. To develop harmlessness, we have to consider how all beings want to be free from suffering. If one focuses on hostile, harmful thoughts, on their desires, on ill will, on harmfulness, that becomes the inclination of the mind. If you frequently think of renunciation, of goodwill and harmlessness, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Like I said before, every thought matters. The direction of our lives, the direction our lives take, always comes back to the the intentions we generate moment by moment in the course of our lives. I'd like to end with a short segment from the Dhammapada. Many of you have heard this. It really reflects the core teachings of karma. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Thank you.